Science Fiction University. Hello and welcome to Science Fiction University. This episode, The Attack of the 60s, is a deep dive into the ways science fiction changed during the 1960s and how those changes have come down to us. We're your fan and writer hosts. I'm Blue Gal. And I'm Drift Glass. And you can visit Science Fiction University at our website, sciencefictionuniversity.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There's a Patreon button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution to Science Fiction University, P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. Warning, this episode contains spoilers for For All Mankind, The Foundation, and Dune, and possibly other stories we think are cool and worth mentioning. For All Mankind is on Apple TV. Dune, the movie, premiered in the United States on October 21st, 2021, and was available on HBO Max for 31 days. It appears to be returning to the big screens due to its nomination for a Best Picture Oscar. Foundation is currently on Apple TV. So we will be talking about those productions, all of which have a connection to the 1960s. Yes, they do. But first, you and I are going to lightly cover the life and times of a woman a lot of our listeners probably have never heard of before named Kay Tarrant. She's a very important character in science fiction history. She was John Campbell's editor and right hand at the very popular science fiction magazine, Astounding Science Fiction, almost from day one. Now, for decades, Astounding was the market maker in science fiction, and virtually all the Golden Age authors came up through Astounding and sold their work there. Stories about Ms. Tarrant's strict rules about no sex, no naughty language, and generally no non-G-rated adult themes have been handed down as community lore by authors and fans for decades, although it's not clear whether those rules were hers or whether they were Campbell's. He used the excuse of take it up with Kay to keep angry writers who objected to their work being edited off his back. Now, her prudishness appears to have been professional rather than personal. A few years before her death, she told a group of writers, personally, I don't give a f what you write, but we have teenagers who read this magazine. Whatever the editorial arrangement was, she and Campbell almost single-handedly held the genre of science fiction to G-rated juvenilia standards until the audience for science fiction began to age and the market expanded to other outlets. Now, arguably the first science fiction story to, to feature sex as a major theme was the late Philip Jose Farmer's story, The Lovers, which was published in 1952. And by the 1960s, the market had opened enough so that new writers who wanted to tackle adult themes like civil rights, the counterculture, feminism, gay rights, unjust warfare, environmentalism, and so forth, could find a home there. There was a period during which the golden age began to transition into what now is called the new wave. And this is where we've centered today's science fiction university. At that inflection point during the late 50s and early 60s, when things in science fiction began to change. And we want to remind everyone about the spoiler warning. We will be discussing the original Asimov Foundation trilogy, which was peak golden age science fiction, along with the disappointing mess that Apple TV made of it and why their adaptation ultimately failed. We will also be discussing the original Dune novel published by Frank Herbert in 1965. 
During the early days of science fiction's transition to the new wave and Denis Villeneuve's extremely successful adaptation of the first half of that novel, Dune, and why that movie worked. Finally, we're going to be talking about the For All Mankind TV series, which starts off squarely in the Golden Age space race days of NASA as a fledgling agency full of hotshot pilots and white male engineers in white short-sleeved shirts, but with scripts that Kay Tarrant would have set on fire. So let's start with a plot summary and major characters in Foundation. Now, according to Wikipedia, the log line for the TV series Foundation is the thousand-year saga of the Foundation, a band of exiles who discover the only way to save the Galactic Empire from destruction is to defy it. Now, there's some overlap between the characters in the TV series and the novel, but the differences are so stark that it's best to jump right into what went right and what went wrong with Apple TV's The Foundation. And let's begin by making it clear we do not believe science fiction's original source material is holy text. No, it's not. We have no objections to screenwriters adding, deleting, or otherwise altering the original story for reasons of time for clarity, or for advances in technique. It's done all the time, and it's done very well. Uh, For example, if anyone were to adapt Robert Heinlein's Methuselah's Children for modern viewers, the character of Andrew Jackson's slipstick Libby would need to be renovated for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that a slipstick refers to the slide rule that Libby whips out whenever he needs to make complex orbital calculations. And no one knows what a slide rule is anymore. But what any successful adaptation must do is remain true to the original spirit and major plot points of the novel. And this is where Foundation fails. So let's start with the Foundation plot summary from Wikipedia that says the thousand-year saga of the Foundation, a band of exiles who discover the only way to save the Galactic Empire is to defy it. No and no. The Foundation was not set up to save the Empire. The Empire is doomed and the band of exiles are not there to defy anything. On the pretext of creating an Encyclopedia Galactica, they're carefully chosen and placed at a specific place and time far outside the reach of the declining empire, so their society could develop in a very specific way, prompted by a series of inevitable crises, so that the Dark Age, following the inevitable collapse of the empire, could be shortened from 30,000 years to 1,000 years. So now let's look at the main characters of the novel versus the series. All right. So from the novel, we have Harry Seldon, Harry Raven Seldon. He is the inventor of psychohistory, the science of predicting the future. We have Gal Dornick, the narrator of the first section of the novel entitled The Psychohistorians, but they, Gal is not the protagonist. We have Salvor Hardin, the first mayor of Terminus, and protagonist of the first half of the novel. Hardin guides the Foundation through its first two Selden crises. And Hober Mallow, a master trader and the first non-Foundation protagonist of the novel. Now, hold those in mind while we talk about the main characters from the TV series. Harry Selden, who's played by Jared Harris. Uh, So far, so good. We loved him in Mad Men. He's an excellent actor. But then comes Brother Day, played by Lee Pace. As the Emperor of the Galaxy and the middle-aged member of a series of genetic clones of the first Emperor, Cleon I. Now, we loved Lee Pace and Halt and Catch Fire, the Hobbit movies, and Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day uh, as the good guy love interest there. 
He's a very versatile actor, but the cloning thing does not bode well for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. Then we have Brother Dusk, played by Terrence Mann, the eldest member of that genetic clone series. Then we have Brother Dawn, played by Cassian Bilton, the youngest member of that series of clones of Cleon I. Then we have Etmo Demerezel, played by Laura Byrne, an android major domo of the Emperors who is over a thousand years old and one of the last surviving androids from a historic event called the Robot Wars. Now, like the novel, there's a character named Gal Dornick, played by Lou Liebel, but her role and backstory diverge wildly and unnecessarily from the novel. There's a character named Salvor Hardin, played by Lee Harvey. She's the warden of Terminus, and we should mention Terminus is the name of the planet on which the Foundation exists, and Trantor is the galactic center and the heart of the Empire. She's the hero of the Foundation's first crisis, which is fine. She also has a completely superfluous love interest and is later revealed to be the daughter of Gal Dornick because space travel and time dilation and stasis fields and writers who feel the need to add completely gratuitous soap opera plot twists to this story. Is there a character, I don't recall this, is -hmm. there a character in the novel who is a android major domo? There is... There are a whole bunch of characters who ain't there. There is no clone series of emperors. Mm -hmm. There is a lightly mentioned emperor, but the entire imperial backstory, along with the major domo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, appear nowhere in the novel. So this is just completely made up. Apart yes. from the Foundation's trilogy. Now, as as you know, as we talked about, we don't believe science fiction, the original text, is holy text. No. But you better not screw with things that are going to mess up the actual story. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. well... As you may have begun to suspect from what Driftglass <laughs> is saying, the history and family drama of the three cloned emperors takes up a huge amount of story time and energy in the TV series and virtually none in the novel. Because the whole point of the novel is that the collapse of the Empire is, what did we say before, unstoppable and inevitable. There's no tension about that. In the novel, Selden mentions in passing that some of the factors in the fall of the Empire will be the known probability of imperial assassination, viceregal revolt, the contemporary recurrence of periods of economic depression, the declining rate of planetary explorations, etc. The sweep of history dooms the Empire, but in the TV series, the central triggering event is a massive terrorist attack, apparently from Anacron and Thespin terrorists, which, again, never happened in the novel. There is no planet called Thespin in the novel. The Emperor orders that both planets be space-nuked. That also never happened. The attack destroys Tranter's gigantic space elevator, there's no such thing in the novel, which collapses onto the planet, causing an ecological disaster and killing tens of millions of people. Um, Other glaring points of divergence from the novel are a revival of some pre-imperial religion that believes clones of an individual do not possess souls. Somehow this cult has gotten so powerful that it threatens the emperor's claim to the throne. Then there's cloning, which doesn't exist in the novel. Um, Harry Selden was apparently assassinated by a protege. Oh, no. Uh, Slow ships that take a long-ass time to get where they're going 
because the plot requires it. Oh, don't worry, Harry Seldon's really alive and on a slow ship to his homeworld, which in no way exists anywhere in the novel. The Selden Vault on Terminus emits something called a null field, which knocks people out and maybe kills them, and the field is expanding to maybe cover the entire planet. Uh, the Foundation has force fields, but the Anacreons have laser blasters. Uh, there's just way, way too much time spent covering the home life of the three cloned emperors, more than anyone needs to know, and the young clone has hots for a lady. But it's a clever plot by who knows. Uh, people do get naked and have hot sex in the TV series, which never, ever happened in the novel, thanks to Kate Tarrant. Uh, for the record, this is a definite improvement over the novel. Isaac Asimov was not real good at writing human relations and love scenes. And women. And women. <laughs> yes. uh, it was said that if you just remove gender references, you couldn't tell the men from the women in his novels, which is yeah. largely true. Uh, oops, Harry Seldon isn't alive. It's a digital copy of him that was, for some reason, stored in the knife his protege used to kill him and then was uploaded onto the ship where Gal Dornick was found. By the way, did I mention that Gal Dornick has, Gal Dornick has been floating around in an escape pod for either several years or several decades? I don't know why, but that's that. Also, the backwards barbaric Anacreons haven't just found an old Imperial battleship. They have found the Invictus, one of the greatest battleships the Empire ever built that somehow the Empire misplaced 700 years ago and shows up when the plot demands it. Mm -hmm. And they want to use it to attack the Empire. Now, after a running laser blaster and bow and arrow battle on Terminus and through the corridors of the Invictus and a last second sacrifice of major characters and a group of children who hit some bad guys in the head and allow other major characters to escape and long leaps through space from one ship to another and even longer leaps of logic from <laughs> one plot point to another, the first crisis is resolved. Yay. Yay! The good guys then use the Invictus to fake something called a Mega Flare, which will trick the Empire into thinking that all life out this way has been wiped out. Meanwhile... Genetic hijinks and family secrets are afoot in the Imperial Palace. And that's where the first season ends, which brings us to just about halfway through the first Foundation novel. If you could at all keep track of where in the novel you are, given how much of it is not in the just novel. Not so, at all. Most of what you just heard, you can faintly detect the outlines of what was once the story in there somewhere. Yeah, I think the uh, Harry Seldon character and what he's about is from the novel. I think that character oh, yeah. is who you think except, I expected him to be. Except he's assassinated, but yeah. he's not assassinated. <laughs> All of a sudden, but there's a digital copy maybe. of him, and and maybe there's yeah. surprise births and, <laughs> and 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 twins. And you got conked on the head and forgot. It, it's yeah. it's a soap opera. And I'm just waiting for a hologram of Harry Seldon to be beamed in with the sticks music in the background. And him, there him he is all of a sudden. Fingers right. up, making the devil sign, going, yeah, <laughs> it's Harry Seldon, motherfucker. Now, that's 10 episodes out of a projected 80 episodes. No been, kidding. Yeah, that have been paid for. I'm not sure how much have been paid for, but that's what Apple booked. That's what Apple bought. Now, Let's do a summary of the actual first Foundation novel. All right. Let's 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 also understand why Apple decided eight seasons was needed. Well, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Okay. We're going to get to that. <laughs> but, but for now, let's just, let's, let's 
now that we've covered what you saw in the series, right? Let's talk about what the first part of the foundation novel, the whole foundation novel. Um, you mean the actual is. book? The actual novel. Okay. Yeah. What's the actual plot? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, Gal Dornick arrives from a galactic backwater to work with a famous mathematician and inventor of the science of psychohistory, Harry Selden. But Gal is arrested. Oh no! But not to worry. Selden predicted it would happen. Gal is fine. But Selden is tried and sentenced to exile, which is what he wanted and planned for all along. Selden is terminally ill, but will live to see his Galactic Encyclopedia Foundation established on Terminus. Spoiler, there is also a second foundation, which was established at the other end of the galaxy at a place called Star's End, but is mentioned only briefly. Then we jump ahead 51 years. The Encyclopedia Foundation is five years from publishing its first edition. By the way, every writer would dream of having a 50-year window into which to complete their novel. So I think it's awesome that they've decided to give the Encyclopedia Foundation half a century to complete their work. But the Encyclopedia Foundation now faces its first crisis. A terminus has become surrounded by more powerful rising kingdoms that have broken away from the empire, and the most powerful among them, the Anacreons, has made it clear they intend to occupy Terminus and divide up the land among Anacreon royalty. Uh, Terminus is virtually defenseless. It has no resources at all in terms of weapons or metals or anything. Uh, it has very few guns of any kind from the old days of the Empire. They are essentially an agrarian community and defenseless. Now, Salvor Hardin is the protagonist here. He is the mayor of Terminus and uses not blasters and arrows, but conversation, misdirection, stalling, bluffing and flattery to gather intel and keep Anacreon off balance. This is also the point in the novel where the whole college crowd versus the townies tensions on Terminus are brought into focus. The handful of scientists working on the encyclopedia still see the foundation as nothing more than a means to publish their work free of imperial interference. But there are tens of thousands of other people who live there and work there and raise families there and now think of themselves as a community and think of Terminus as their home. Or and can I interrupt and just say sure. that I think one of the things that does work in the TV series mm -hmm. is um, making it a multiracial cast. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And no. so you you have the conflicts. The conflicts are so much easier to understand when you have a African royal community represented. Uh -huh. And then what is clearly a working class Hispanic community and then white saviors of different varieties coming in pretending that they run things. Oh yeah. And that that makes it a lot easier to understand from from a visual standpoint, a storytelling standpoint. Absolutely. Those parts of Asimov's or any golden age work absolutely need to be, you know, scrapped and redone. Mm -hmm. uh, they mm -hmm. they would they just wouldn't work. Like like Andrew Slipstick Libby's named after a Confederate war general. Right. Uh, you know, that sort of that sort of stuff just has to go. There's no mm -hmm. place for it in modern fiction. All right. of that stuff can be scrapped and redone. We're, we have no problem with that. It's the it's the parts of the story that wreck the plot mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. that we're, we're talking about. So we're here at this. At this point, we're reminded that the mysterious sealed vault that Harry Selden left behind is scheduled to open itself within the month. Now, isn't that an odd coincidence? Hmm. The first crisis has come <laughs> upon them. And this vault that he left behind that nobody knows why it's there um, is scheduled to open. Well, that's kind of cool. Now, 
a representative of the Empire eventually does show up. It's not Cleon. It's not a clone. It's not any of the stuff you see in the TV series. It's just a diplomat. And he's a useless fop who accomplishes nothing. And his arrival actually only speeds up Anacreon's invasion plans. Mm. Then the vault opens and a hologram of the late Harry Seldon drops the bombshell of the first novel, which is the encyclopedia was a fraud. Mm. He never cared if it was finished or not. This whole thing has been a ruse to hide the real plan, which is putting the right people in just the right place at just the right time and setting them on a path to shorten the coming inevitable dark age from 30,000 years to 1,000 years. So he was gathering together smart people. Smart people, but as we will learn later, among all the smart people who were there, competent, capable people, there's not a single psychohistorian. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. one. And that becomes very important around the second and third novel when you find out where all the psychohistorians went. Because they ain't in this community. Because if you had psychohistorians here, they would be in danger of figuring out the future. What Harry Seldon had lied about. Right. Well, they'd, no, they'd be in danger of figuring out what the path was they were supposed to follow. No. And if they know if they know what's going to happen, then they're in danger of screwing it up by having too much knowledge of the future. Ah. So the one right. thing that's left out of the community are the people who are like Sir Harry Seldon. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the first crisis is resolved by diplomacy, not by blowing stuff up and shooting stuff, but by diplomacy, by pitting the other three kingdoms in the region against Anacreon, with Terminus becoming the fulcrum on which the balance of power is maintained thanks to their superior technology and diplomatic skills. Mm-hmm. So the prosperity of the three kingdoms comes to depend on the foundation which dresses its technology up in religious ritual. And gradually the foundation comes to rule over the three kingdoms. Now, do you want to jump ahead 30 years? 30 years later, a second crisis arises. Anacreon has gotten their hands on an old imperial battleship. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It does. It does. Mm -hmm. And it's once again threatening the foundation with politics, espionage, diplomacy, and seeming betrayal ensuing. However, by cloaking the atomic energy that all the kingdoms now rely on in the trappings of a religion and making their scientists into high priests of that religion, the foundation has made it theologically impossible for the militarily superior Anacreon to attack the foundation. Although the rulers of Anacreon are pretty sure the foundation's religion is bunk, their people are believers, including the military. They now consider their rulers to be heretics and that attacking the foundation would doom their immortal souls. Mm-hmm. Crisis over and right on schedule, Hologram Seldon appears again to give them an attaboy. This covers the first two thirds of the novel. The last two sections are entitled The Traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, and The Merchant Princes in which the power of trade and commerce extends the influence of the foundation, just as the power of religion had. That's the novel. That's yep. the whole novel. Now, why is the TV version of this story such a mess? It is not because they added characters or changed characters' genders or races or added more subplots and details to their backstories. All that is fine. It's because the writers violated the most basic premise of the novel and messed around with the most fundamental motivations of the main character. So, one of the cornerstone concepts of the novel is the inevitability of social collapse no matter what the Empire does or doesn't do, which is why the novel spends almost no time 
on the activities of the emperor because they don't matter. And yet the My Three Clones family drama, the endless details of their genetics and glitches and the aftermath of a terrorist attack and an android servant who survived something called the Robot Wars, which never happened in the novel, and the rituals of some weird religion that was never in the novel takes up fully half the show. Now, the other cornerstone concept of the novel is that once Harry Seldon's plan is in motion, nothing can stop it either. The foundation will be shaped by a series of inevitable Seldon crises in which the foundation finds itself in mortal danger, then gradually all options for dealing with that danger narrow down until only one course of action is open to them. Diplomacy, compromise, and strategic thinking in the face of superior firepower. The action resolves the crisis in the only way it could have been resolved. And in the process, the foundation evolves and emerges stronger than it was before. The story being presented by Apple is the opposite of this in almost every important respect. The plot is moved along by unpredictable firefights in which key characters could have easily been killed by random circumstances like finding a 700-year-old battleship at just the right time. And by sheer coincidence, like a group of plucky Spielberg kids who just happened to be on hand with a monkey wrench when a guard needs to be knocked unconscious. Add in all the other flotsam like multiple digital Seldons, secret mommy reveals, and what looks like some version of the Force, and you don't just have a mess, you have the Anti-Foundation, a TV series doomed to inevitable collapse by its own inherent failings. Also, uh, we have to talk a little bit about Game of Thrones yes. and how it affects, you know, the C-suites of television networks. Yeah. Uh, it's it's obvious that there is an infection of Game of Thronesisms going on throughout the cosmos. Everyone's looking for that big money, perfect other world soap opera to make them rich. Mm-hmm. Instead of just making good television. <laughs> By the way, you know what good television is? Resident Alien is good television. Yeah, Resident Alien is good TV. Solid, good, excellent science fiction. Good story, funny, well-written, character-driven television. Right. Ironically, this uh, problem, this Game of Thrones problem, eventually infected Game of Thrones itself. Yeah. In that the last season of Game of Thrones, by all reviews, was a hot mess. It was. Not based on the books. They rushed ahead and... uh, put everything together real quick uh, in well, a way ran, that made they, no sense. They ran out of novels before they ran out of story. Right. And they right. had to make up what they thought the last season would be. And and it was, it was bad. It was really bad yeah. because yeah. the thing about novels is if they're good and we're talking about good novels here, we, you know, in science fiction university, we only go for quality. We love our quality <laughs> science fiction, but the novels, even the golden age stuff, are written by people who've thought very carefully and very deeply about why the plot moves forward, why things work, what the human interrelationships are. And if you're smart, you take the novel and take what the novelist gave you, which is 90% of the work, and just find a way to visually adapt it to visual storytelling. And the problem is, and this this is, I, I don't know, the Hobbit thing might be great too, but everyone's looking to buy that eight-year giant super series like game of thrones um and they're spending billions of dollars on it and you mm-hmm. know th- this series cost a lot of money and i really wanted it to work i did not want to see sit here and tell you that the foundation as a series so far has sucked but it did and it did for the reasons that it not because of characters not because of backstories because 
they violated the very idea of the novel. They made things that were supposed to be inevitable and sweeping into coincidental and goofy. And that mm-hmm. just doesn't work. It also screws up everybody else's uh, motives. Now, let's talk about the plot and major characters in Dune. There's House Atreides, which is Paul and Lady Jessica and Duke Leto Atreides and Duncan Idaho and Thufir Hawat and Gurney Halleck and Dr. Yui. That's one of the major houses. There's House Harkonnen, which is Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, Raban Harkonnen, and Piter de Vries. There are the Fremen, the natives of the planet. That's Stilgar, Dr. Liet Keynes, I'm sorry, Liet Kynes and Chani. There's the Bene Gesserit, which is represented by Reverend Mother Moam. Now, the novel Dune was published in 1965, and the author is the late Frank Herbert. It tied with Roger Zelazny's This Immortal for the Hugo Award in 1966 and won the very first Nebula Award for Best Novel. Now, the Nebula Award kind of marks the beginning of the new age of science fiction, and the first winner of the Best Novel was Dune. Uh, The novel mentions that it is the year... 10,191 AG, which means after the Spacing Guild, which is founded 10,000 years from now. So Dune is set roughly 20,000 years in the future. And like Game of Thrones, it's set in a place and a time with sweeping history behind it, which is referred to as the story moves along. And its story uh, is a story of intrigue and war and politics among royal houses. Unlike Game of Thrones, the characters in Dune are human beings in our lifetime, And our present is their very, very distant, barely remembered past. Right. So they are actual human beings in In our galaxy. This is not a fantasy novel. This is future. Right. Far, far, far future. Right. In this future, there are a number of noble houses, guilds, and corporations controlling planetary systems. The story's protagonist is young Paul Atreides whose family accepts the stewardship of the planet Arrakis, which is also called Dune. Dune, the planet, is an inhospitable desert wasteland and believed to be only sparsely populated with natives called Fremen. But it is the only source of spice, which is a drug that extends life and makes faster-than-light navigation possible. Without spice... All imperial trade and travel would cease, and the empire would collapse. So controlling the spice and the planet is a very big deal. It is the center of the entire world of this book. So why did the Dune movie work where the Foundation didn't? Well, there's several reasons. First of all, because the script for Dune stuck very closely to the original source material. Dune is such a large, complex novel in which Frank Herbert had already carefully worked out the familial, political, religious, and economic motives of all the major characters. Villeneuve takes full advantage of bleeding-edge CGI technology to make the visuals in Dune look absolutely stunning. And the attack on House Atreides by the Harkonnens looks terrifying and overwhelming, just as David Goyer and Josh Friedman take full advantage of the same technology to make Foundation Vistas look impressive and the attack on the Starbridge look catastrophic. But one works and one doesn't because one logically and organically advances the plot and the other loses the plot under the weight of all the pretty graphics. 
So a second reason why one works and one doesn't is that Denis Villeneuve has been a fan of Dune since his childhood and has clearly thought deeply about how to present the story. Mm -hmm. And he wisely chose to make it a two-part movie. The first movie is two and a half hours long and ends almost exactly at the halfway point of the novel. And setting those limits on his runtime budget freed him to plan how much time he could afford to give each scene, what to emphasize, what to compress, and what to leave out. And now Villeneuve leaves out several scenes that both of us wish had been in the movie. There's a, a, a wonderful, vicious, expository dinner party where a lot of things are explained. Uh, there's a scene where the, the, the disposition of water-soaked linen, after-dinner linen, is used to explain the class culture on the planet. But their absence doesn't diminish our enjoyment of the story or, this is very important, it doesn't alter the basic plot of the story in some really consequential way. Now, Foundation, on the other hand, is an episodic television show scheduled for 80 episodes. Now, the episodes vary in length, but that still comes to around 80 hours of television to write and shoot. Now, as a point of reference, this is, no coincidence, almost exactly as long as Game of Thrones ran. Eight seasons, 10 episodes per season, which is the sort of blockbuster television event Apple clearly hoped it could replicate when it bought Foundation. But the Game of Thrones is just a much richer text with a much deeper background history to draw on. For example, the first book of the original Foundation trilogy clocks in at a very tight 255 pages. The first book of the Song of Ice and Fire series is nearly 700 pages long, and it's by far the shortest book in the series. And even with 80 episodes to play with, Game of Thrones showrunners still had to cut out or consolidate important elements of the book to make it fit. The inherent density of the story and the feeling that we'd arrived at the end of a very long saga full of fascinating details is what made Game of Thrones so immersive. But the Foundation showrunners are faced with the opposite problem, which I will call the Hobbit problem. How to stretch a very lean little story like the Foundation into two seasons of action-packed, special-effects-rich space adventure. And the answer appears to be that they tacked on a bunch of stuff that not is not only superfluous, but actually undercuts the very premise of the novel. Mm -hmm. A third problem uh, for the Foundation is the nature of Asimov's writing. Uh, he's a giant of science fiction's golden age when character development and the complexity and intimacy of human nature took a backseat to driving a story's big ideas forward. Characters in golden age science fiction often feel like little machines constructed by engineers to pick up and move chunks of plot between point A and point B. They weren't built to be Shakespearean, just utilitarian. And as such, there's a very little juicy human passion and frailty available in the original source material for series creators to work with. So to make the story appetizing to an audience which expects a certain amount of sex and violence in their prestige television epics... Foundation creators had to make up a lot of stuff that just wasn't in the novel, but everything they made up ended up dying on the vine of the inevitability of the collapse of the Empire, either because the fears and passions of the characters ultimately make no difference because of the fall of the Empire and the rise of the Foundation are on autopilot, or because the fears and passions of individual characters can and do change the course of events, which cuts directly against the theme of the novel. This is why Dune worked and the Foundation didn't. Because in Dune, the fate of the Galactic Empire hangs on the choices made by individuals based on fear, 
revenge, duty, prophecy, and love. In the Foundation, individual decisions have no effect on the fate of the galaxy because it's all math and every crisis and resolution has already been predicted and planned for by Harry Seldon. I love how, also how Denis Villeneuve uh, introduces Spice. Yes. Introduces the, the actual crisis that's going on. Yes. Um, very efficiently. You understand it immediately. This is what matters. This is why it matters. Here is the scale of what we're dealing with in terms of planets versus spaceships. Mm -hmm. Everything's huge. And uh, you individual people are incredibly small compared to the machinery and uh, landscape that we're dealing with. Yeah, the, the, um, the, I think they were called hayliners or highliners that they use to move people from planet to planet mm -hmm. are the size of a moon. Right. And, right. and these giant ships have within them giant ships that when they land on the planet, you realize, holy crap, this is gargantuan. Mm -hmm. And when they, they, they come into the Arrakis and they land at the city, the director takes time, which he doesn't have a lot of, to, to fly us over the whole city. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. see, it gives you a very clear sense of where you are and how, how desperately hot and dry this place is. And how everything is driven by water and spice and politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, David, uh, yeah, I'd like you to take a minute and talk about why the other versions of Dune failed yeah. compared to this one. There was a sci-fi version uh, for television, which was fine. I mean, you know, I wouldn't recommend you you burn a lot of time on it, but it was okay. The the one that really kind of you know made it uh, an impossible hurdle to clear until uh, the director Villeneuve did was was the David Lynch version. Mm -hmm. Because this was famously an unfilmable movie because so much of it is backstory and internal monologue. And, and David Lynch never found a way to stop talking ab about, have his character stop expositing in the story. And there's a, a lovely little uh, thing on Red Letter Media where they're comparing the two and saying, in, in David Lynch's Dune, you have characters explaining things all the time. And since so much of the, my, uh, dialogue is internal. You have them thinking about things, and you have voiceover constantly. You know, every time Paul has a vagrant thought, you hear what it is, and every time his mother has a vagrant thought, you hear what that is. And everyone's internal monologue is just said out loud uh, as voiceover. And for all the talking they do, you never understand what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's all very confusing and muddled. It's also because Dino De Laurentiis apparently hacked the crap out of the movie. Um, David Lynch thought the production was a nightmare. A lot of the movie looks really good. Um, David Lynch has a really good eye for uniforms and sets and scale. And, you know, that that all that stuff looks weird and wonderful. But for all of the talk, talk, talking that people did and, and the big slabs of this movie that were apparently cut out just so it would fit, you know, they could run it in a theater um, in a timely way. In the modern version of Dune, none of that happens. And everything is clear because the director makes enormous effort to tell you by showing you where you are, what's going on and, and developing character through dialogue, picking just the right sentences for people to talk. Uh, so you'll understand who they are, what their relationships are, why they're in, why they're in danger and so forth. And David Lynch just didn't do that or didn't have the opportunity to do that or just doesn't know how to do that. And the idea that the, the director of elephant man would be given Dune as his next project is kind of one of those eighties, 
cocaine-driven, insane <laughs> ideas that yeah. I, I I look back and I, I I love it. I love the idea that you gave David Lynch the, the weirdest novel from the Golden Age or one of them anyway, and said just run with it. Um, and the result is is weird and disappointing and not a good movie, uh, but it's beloved for its its failure because mm-hmm. he he swung real hard and it misses real hard. But I still have a very soft spot for that movie. Um, but what Villeneuve did was really, really in, sort of internalize the material since childhood, and he he knew exactly what scenes he needed to have in exactly what order to tell the story up to the midpoint. And I'd say you can't do this in two hours, two and a half hours. This is this is a six hour epic, and I'm not going to make people sit in a theater for six hours because, frankly, they're not going to pay me. So he sold them the first half on the promise that people would love it. People did love it. It's up for best picture. Mm-hmm. And now he's going to get to the second half. And the second half is a very different half than the first because it's it's desert. The first half was establishing the House of Treaties and who they are and who the Harkonnens are and what Dune is and why the emperor has this plot to you know, screw the Atreides and kill them all. Mm-hmm. And the second half is desert mysticism, the rise of a messiah, um, the fact that, you know, they, and I understand the, they are going to focus a lot on the Harkonnens as well. Yes. Well, the Harkonnens are the villains. Yeah. But yeah. the Harkonnens, there's a genetic story here, which is these houses are related to each other. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the idea that you're, you're the Kwisatz Haderach, the person who, the man who can see into all the places the women can't see, um, the whole story is building a messiah and for really sort of crude um, political reasons. And they've been genetically engineering a messiah for, for thousands of years. And it turns out that these houses are supposed to be conjoined. Harkonnens and Atreides were supposed to be inbred in the next generation, but Lady Jessica didn't want to do that. She wanted to give her um, consort, her lover, a son, not a daughter, mm-hmm. which screws up 10,000 years of, <laughs> you know, of genetic it's, planning. Yep. Um, yep. And that whole thing, the, the mother-son relationship, father-son relationship, the the Harkonnens being monstrously evil. Um, and how do you get a planet that's nearly uninhabitable, where people think there's a few thousand Fremen? There aren't. Spoiler, there are millions of Fremen. And they will become the Paul's mighty jihad army mm-hmm. as they sweep out of Dune and basically conquer the galaxy. Um, all of that is set up beautifully. And, and uh, the whole idea that the end of the first movie is is um, Chani, uh, mm-hmm. to, soon to be Paul's um, lover, wife, the mother of his children, saying, come on, let's go, you know, is yeah. is such a great little out. And it really is almost exactly at the halfway point of the novel. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. director gave a lot of thought to what, how to tell a, a very inherently um, verbal and deeply rooted and mythological story visually. It's mm-hmm. so important. You got to be able to tell stories with pictures. And he does. He does a great job. Let's. Uh, give Apple TV a bone and yeah. talk a little bit about one of their really good shows that's oh, yeah. also uh, hooked into this 1960s and yes. actually very interesting uh, how they do it and why it works is just as interesting as why, for instance, uh, the foundation doesn't work. Yeah. Um, this is this is about For All Mankind, which we highly recommend. Yeah. Um, For All Mankind is an original American science fiction drama that premiered in November of 2019 and was created and written by Ronald D. Moore, Matt Wolpert, and Ben Nadivi. I, I just want to mention 
Ronald D. Moore, uh, I'm sure listeners to this podcast know, uh, worked on Star Trek for years and is the creator of the revised Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. He knows science fiction, you know, he to knows his TV. fingertips. And he knows yes, TV. He, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, for All Mankind depicts an alternate history in which the Soviet Union lands the first man on the moon in 1969 which kicks off a competitive space race that never ends. The series stars Joel Kinnaman as the lead role in as fictional NASA astronaut Edward Baldwin, with Michael Dorman, Sarah Jones, Chantel Van Satten, Jody Balfour, and Ren Schmidt. The series uses historical figures, including Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, Mercury 7 astronaut Deke Slayton, Rocket scientist Werner von Braun, U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy, and U.S. Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. As we said, For All Mankind premiered on November 1st, 2019. The second season was critically acclaimed and nominated for the TCA Award for Outstanding Achievement in Drama. The series has now been renewed for a third season. And I'm very much looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, for All Mankind is fun to throw in the mix here because it shows what science fiction on television can be when inventive veterans of science fiction like Ronald Moore and Matt Walpert and Ben DeVey are free to take a big idea that would have been right at home during the golden age of science fiction. You know, what would happen if the Soviets had beaten the United States to the moon and kicked off a global space race, but populate it with real flesh and blood people with real flaws and real relationships and secrets which would never have made it into the pages of Astounding Magazine. Right. This is an alternate timeline story where the point of divergence with our reality is actually 1966 when Sergei Korolev, the father of the Soviet space program, died during a routine operation in Moscow. And the Soviet space program never got it together after that. In For All Mankind, Korolev lives and he makes manned, uh, the Soviet manned space program happen and lands Soviet astronaut, cosmonaut, sorry, on the moon before the United States, which stuns the the United States because expectations of being first to the moon had been part of the culture. This is who we're going to be. And President Nixon is so furious that the Soviets had beaten us there and was determined to do something even more historic, landing the first woman on the moon. Except in 1969, there were no women in the space program (laughs) or at NASA in any leadership capacity. There were hardly any women pilots of any kind to be found anywhere. But with a mandate from the White House, all things are possible. And soon a handful of possible female candidates are pulled together and put through extensive and frequently life-threatening training exercises. And, of course, they're also put into uh, close uh, relationships with male astronauts. Yes, they are. Which leads to a lot of... Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> well, and a lot of resentment because... And a lot of resentment. You know. Yep. Because yep. the white guys and the flyboys who are already hotshot Air Force, mm-hmm. you know, daredevils, <laughs> right? They're just yep. daredevils. And very much a, a testosterone boys club. Um, they don't like it. <laughs> well, and, uh, and the pleasure uh, of For All Mankind is it has a fundamentally optimistic vision Mm-hmm. of an alternate future where the Cold War is still going on and the U.S. and the USSR still point nukes at each other. But their competition to top each other in an ongoing space race is exhilarating to watch. And science fiction nerds will enjoy noting all the big and small ways 
in which history and culture of the world of For All Mankind, which is always going on in the background on television, in newspapers, over the radio, continues to diverge from our own. For example, the show finally answers the question, what would happen to a lunar-based crew who are stranded on the moon due to a lethal accident back on Earth, and all they had to amuse themselves with was a single videotape of a Bob Newhart show. Yep. We've That's all wanted all to know got. that. They've, yeah. all, they've got one episode <laughs> of Bob Newhart, and they memorize it and memorize it, and they enact it, <laughs> and the videotape fails, so they, they put all of their astronaut genius into taking the, the video player apart and carefully putting it back together again because this is all they've got. And Hi Bob becomes the intimate code among these three astronauts for the mm-hmm. rest of the series. Mm-hmm. And it's just a lovely little touch, but there's it's full of things like that. All very uh, reasonable, all technologically possible within the, the time frame of the uh, when it was going on. There's no magic technology thrown in to save people from anything. This is mm-hmm. all real tech, but but accelerated because everyone wants to get a foothold on the moon now and establish a lunar base now and move on to Mars now. This is the space program I had dreamed of as a child. Right. But but also counter to the space dream that we all had as children, because it's hostility based and it's based on competition with the Russians, there's weapons involved and there's violence yep. involved and there's yep. Murder involved. I mean, it, it it's not the moon. Then all of a sudden becomes a war zone, a battleground, and, and a battleground, and yep. and uh, yeah. So it's it's not onward and upward. No, it, 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 human nature takes its takes its toll. Well, and that that's what makes it very similar to Dune in this sense. It comes down squarely on the side of character driven plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world it imagines people are people that can be petty or generous and vicious or brave. And you, the viewer, are never in doubt as to why they're doing what they're doing, even when they're acting stupid and destructive. Mm -hmm. And in the end, the show believes that noble science nerds really can do amazing things and really can save the world. It's Mm -hmm. a pretty wonderful message. And I like how For All Mankind works in that it knows it wants to be a soap opera and it knows it wants to be alternate history. But neither one of those things overshadows the other. Oh. So you get you get to see women on the moon, and then you get to see how that creates conflict, and then there's romance, and then there's more conflict, <laughs> and then there's well, marriages, and there's more conflict. And none of that overshadows um, the fact that you see different people become president that you weren't expecting to become right. president. Absolutely. You see, you see things happen that are just a little twist from uh, the history that we remember. Oh, wait, that person didn't die that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that disaster didn't happen the way we thought it would, was going to happen. And you see news reports on the television that people are watching that are just incidental, whereas for you and I, Drift Glass, that was a big day in history. It was, it was a catastrophe, or it right. was glorious, but it... Yeah. It's just, oh, that guy's still alive and he's talking and he's making music and blah, blah, blah. That's yeah. that's weird. Yeah, um, right. But it, right. It, it, it's that level of detail going on all the time in the background that this mm-hmm. is a fully imagined and immersive world. Has Elvis left the building or not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, yeah. and you have you know people who have um, gotten married because they are – they have different sexual orientations. Mm-hmm. And, and they have to married, protect themselves from They've gotten married fired. out of convenience. Yeah. And – because they'd be fired. They'd be mm-hmm. fired instantly. And suddenly it becomes a real problem mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. 
now they are famous people. Now they're high up in executive positions. Now they have different goals in life and they dearly love each other, but they're not, and they're in every sense a married couple, except they're not really married. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. have infidelity and you have tragic death and you have sacrifice and you have stupidity. You have all the things you want in a good, juicy soap opera type story. And you, and I, I never doubted when this woman cheats on her husband with that guy, why she did it. Right. I never doubted why they regretted it. (laughs) I never doubted. And they did it in a bomb shelter, you know, Mm -hmm. that had been Mm -hmm. converted into a storage room because that's probably what would look like in a bar in Florida in 1967 or 69 or 72. There's, there's, there's espionage. There's people trying to get in touch with their opposite number uh, beyond the bureaucracy because the bureaucrats are screwing things up and they want to talk science to each other. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? Russian cosmonauts and scientists have gone through exactly the same things that Americans have. And they have so much in common. And they want to talk to each other and understand each other so much. Um, It is very much a Star Trek kind of thing yeah. in that yeah. the future is hopeful. You can solve these problems. People can do things that get you past the crisis. And sometimes it involves sacrifice and sometimes it involves telling the authorities to screw themselves, but it's a fundamentally optimistic uh, vision. And the end of you know, the second series is you see a boot stepping onto the surface of Mars. And mm-hmm. it's like 1974. And again, that's the space program I wanted as a kid. And, and you know, people like Ronald Moore know that. Yeah. They know yeah. that this – I people like me grew up with the visions of 2001, you know, space stations, you know, as just a midpoint jump between here and the moon and tourist travel in space and all that stuff. And he's given us a lot of that. And, and the idea is Richard effing Nixon had to do a publicity stunt by putting a woman on the moon. Yep. And that, that kicks to off beat everything the Russians. To beat the to Russians beat the is Russians. something. Yes. And Richard Nixon yeah. uh, doesn't end well. <laughs> <laughs> just saying this didn't save his presidency. And I just think you'll enjoy it. And there, yep. there are parts that, that made me roll my eyes like, oh, okay, all right. But I was never disappointed uh, with the meal I was being served. A little piece of it here and there might have been undercooked or overcooked. But the meal itself was delicious. I look forward to the third course. Yeah. And uh, thanks, Apple TV, for doing that good show, and yeah. you can keep you can continue to do more good shows like that. We'd like that very much. Well, and here's the thing: if if they had taken the foundation script and given it to Ronald Moore, oh had, my goodness! If they had taken <laughs> there's the foundation, an alternate history for I, you. I <laughs> well, let I, I you and I have this conversation when we watch um, television. Sometimes we're watching um, you know a, a show called The Gilded Age now, which is not a science fiction story, but you know it's like. Why didn't this get run through a typewriter two or three more times? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Why mm-hmm. didn't somebody in the room say, but this, this, no, <laughs> don't do yeah. that. Um, you can't because, do this part. You can't make this scene look this way. It won't no, work. Yes. Because yes. If, if it's a completely new experience, if it's a completely unwritten, if there's no novel to refer to, mm-hmm. like with All Mankind or For All Mankind, um, you're free to do whatever you want, but you still have to, people still have to be people. And there has to be conflict and there has to be resolution and there has to be growth. Uh, or it's a boring story, and th- it has all those things. Um, when you have a pre-existing novel, you can't just tear up the basic element of the novel because you want it to last for eight years. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. it doesn't work. Now it might work for people. I, I I can't put myself in their in their position. It might work for people who have never heard of this before, mm-hmm. who just go, "This is cool," 
have never read the Foundation novels, have no background in it at all. They, they, they're vaguely aware of Isaac Asimov um, and like to look at big things going ex- exploding in space. Uh, might work for them. And if that's great, go with God. You know, have a great time. Enjoy your series. But Well, and I, I think then that we're setting up a conflict between is is the novel set as a holy text or not? Right. And I think what you're saying is the major plot themes of the novel should reflect in the show. And if if they wanted to call this My Three Clones... Yeah, and, do it. And do it. <laughs> do it. You know? But... That's a different show from if something that they're calling the Foundation Trilogy based on the novels of Isaac Asimov. Yeah, it, it's it, not the, that. The core of the Foundation novel is the inevitability of all events mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. it unfolds over a thousand years or whatever it is. And then, of course, in the second novel, there's a twist. Yes. Slash third, there's a twist, in which case an unpredictable event shows up. And how do you deal with it? Because it freaks everyone out because everyone knows, oh, this is all predictable. Whatever we do, it's the right thing to do. And then there's a twist. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because maybe you haven't read it. But that's fine. That's for the second or third novel. The The whole idea of making things coincidental and and contingent on individual people doing not getting shot or getting knocked on the head is like saying, you know what? I like Dune, but let's make Dune like a golf resort planet. Let's put Dune at Disney World. Right. Where there's a lot of, you know, <laughs> there's, there's deserts, but, there, but there's also green spaces. And the Fremen are kind of like... You know, happy. No, no, no. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Because And then they all go eat at Epcot Center and it's right. very international. <laughs> well, what, what happens to international space travel or, or space travel, faster than light travel with no spice? Well, we'll invent some new technology like slow ships where it doesn't really matter what you do. Like, no, no. That's, that's not the story. If you want to buy the title and just make whatever you want, then do that. But I came to it hoping, really hoping they would take a beloved classic of science fiction, which is a little mildewy and a little outdated and needs an update. It really does. And turn it into something lovely like Dune. Mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. didn't do that. They they did a bad thing. and <laughs> They should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> uh, and if they want to avoid doing this again, if the people who are going to make, I don't know, um, uh, Rendezvous with Rama mm-hmm. or Childhood's End, which has actually already been a TV series or some other classic, call me. <laughs> I, will, I will take you by the hand and explain to you the parts you can fix and change and the parts you can't because mm-hmm. the parts you can't are the engine of the story and you don't mm-hmm. place the engine of the story with three cloned emperors and their love life. Doesn't work. <laughs> Doesn't work. All anyway. right. Science Fiction University is recorded under a Creative Commons license. You can support the show by donating via Patreon. Details at our website, sciencefictionuniversity.com.